You're listening to Undisciplined on Utah Public Radio. I'm Nalini Nadkarni, and today we're talking about the benefits of living together. The rocky intertidal zone of the California coast is a harsh and often unforgiving place, a habitat where plants and animals have to navigate unpredictable and ever-changing exposures to the dynamics of saltwater, freshwater, wind, and hot sun. It's these very dynamics that have made this habitat such a rich place to study survival. And those studies have helped inform theories that underlie the very core of the field of ecology, predation and competition. But new research in this habitat is offering clues about another kind of interaction, the mutual protection that different species can provide for each other to counteract the negative effects of this harsh environment especially in a warming world. Writing in a recent issue of the journal Ecology, Dr. Laura Jurgens and her collaborators have described the ways in which life forms can alter their own habitats to keep them safe from extremes, forming what researchers describe as biogenic environments. These have the capacity to reduce stress by easing environmental pressures. And they've suggested that protecting these biogenic habitats may help populations beat the negative effects of climate change. Laura Jurgens is an assistant professor in the Department of Marine Biology at Texas A&M University at Galveston, where her work is focused on solving problems in coastal marine conservation and sustainability. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Nalini. I'm very glad to be here. Great. Um, You know, one thing I found fascinating about your work is this key concept that you addressed in your paper about biogenic environments. Could you define that term, which which is so fascinating, but maybe some of us haven't haven't come across that exact term? Sure, of course. So bio just means living. Right. And genic is is really just created by. So those are the two roots roots there. So it means created by living things. And so we have lots of biogenic habitats all over the world. They tend to be our biggest biodiversity hotspots. You can think of rainforests and boreal forests. Um, So they're very, very widespread and are the places that most of our biodiversity on the planet actually lives in habitats structured by other organisms. I see. Um, and speaking of organisms, um, one of the, you know, the medium of radio is wonderful for many things, but not for conveying the visual images of what you've been studying to our listeners. And I was wondering if you could just to start us off, describe to our listeners the two organisms that you really focused on in your study, uh, this isopod and then this thing called a porcelain crab. Can you just describe what they look like to us? Sure. So these are tiny marine species. These Isopods, they look like a pill bug that you would find in your house, which is actually closely related to, so that's also an isopod, but these are marine isopods and they are about the size of um, a ring fingernail and they're, but they're voracious little predators and they live in crevices and especially are high, high density populations inside the muscle bed where they're foraging for all kinds of other species that they feed on. Got it. Okay, thanks. That helps me picture these big muscle beds full of these these little crazy, uh, full animals. of lots of little <laughs> animals. Yes, right. great. And the porcelain the porcelain crabs are also very small, but about the size of a quarter, and they are 
filter feeders. So unlike most crabs that are, you know, go around and either either eat other animals or eat sort of dead detritus type things, they come out of the mussel bed and then pull plankton out of the water to eat. But they're very small crabs. They're really beautiful. They tend to be sort of a bright blue and they're also running around inside those mussel beds. Okay, great. So we've you've set the stage in terms of the characters. Um, one thing I really loved was how you and your co-authors um, combined both observational work uh, and the observational work of your predecessors with experimental approaches. And I'm wondering if you could describe the experiment and the sort of the, the overall study design that you took to make these discoveries. Sure. So this type of experiment, we asked a series of questions and we linked a series of experiments together to answer them. So we wanted to understand how the mussel bed habitats were changing and are changing the environment that the animals and actually plants as well and algae living inside there experience. So we first had to measure that. And you can imagine these are small habitats. They still have lots and lots of species in them, but they're small species. So we had tiny little sensors with loggers attached, data loggers attached to them that measured temperature and humidity inside those muscle beds. So that was the first phase. And then you went on to, and I'm, I'm picturing your, that figure one that's in your paper. Um, again, we can't see that, you know, we can't share that with our listeners, but I felt it was like a super interesting and very informative way of describing just with a single figure what the sort of environmental constraints are for these these creatures that live in these muscle beds. I was wondering if you could just kind of summarize what you found in terms of those uh, sort of the the edges or borders of what constrains the the lives of these of these organisms on the on the in the rocky intertidal. These habitats are like miniature forests. So you can imagine if you or I walk into a forest on a hot day, we immediately feel cooler. That shading is protecting us from some of that solar radiation. And the same thing is happening on an even more dramatic scale inside these muscle beds that act almost as sort of a heavy, wet blanket that is both shading and retaining moisture for all of these creatures living inside there. So what we did when we measured the temperature and humidity, we also simultaneously measured temperature, humidity, solar radiation, wind speed, all of these factors outside the muscle bed where you and I are experiencing them. And then we correlated them to see how much the muscle bed was modifying the conditions. And so you see that the muscle bed reduces the temperature. So while outside the bed, it can get very hot um, up to in Fahrenheit terms, we're talking you know, over 90 degrees on, this, on the surface of the muscle bed or the surface of the rock on a hot sunny day. But inside the muscle bed, it never gets over about 70, 68, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow, that is huge, I would imagine. Yes, yes, of course. It's much bigger than large swings in temperature that we're, we expect, even with seasons, for example. The muscle bed really buffers the temperatures. It also doesn't get quite as cold, and the humidity stays extremely high, so constantly over 80% which if you imagine yourself as a tiny little marine animal, when the tide goes out, you're high and dry, you're exposed to sun and wind and all of these stressors. And you can, you can think about that as if, you know, we can't just take a dolphin and throw it up on the, on the cliffside for six hours a day. 
but these tiny marine animals are experiencing this every single day being exposed to terrestrial conditions. The mussel bed is keeping it humid so they can tolerate that. So I, so one of the things I was wondering about as I was reading your paper was, you know, are these, these mitigating, these, these tempering kinds of forces that are actually created by the living organisms themselves, can they really mitigate the negative effects of, of what we expect to happen with climate change on, this, on the Pacific coast? Really, it comes down to what timescale are we talking about? Now, there is a potential for these types of habitats to help buy some time for us to resolve the long-term effects of climate change. Now we're already locked into a certain amount of climate change and we're seeing its effects already. So there's nothing, you know, we even, however, if we intervene and dramatically reduce emissions, we can slow and then hopefully eventually stop those effects. So these muscle beds, they're not, they're not going to survive themselves, but as long as the bed itself stays intact, it can for the time being, at least for the next, maybe it looks like from our, our research for the next 100 years or so, buffer the inhabitant species from experiencing those extreme heat waves that we're seeing more and more frequently now. Got it. Well, in a way, that seems hopeful to me. That's kind of the best news I've heard of so far in, in quite a while, I think, in terms of, uh, of the effects of life on life. Um, I noticed that some of the papers that you cited were, were co-written were co by Reagan Calloway. And he was actually my very first graduate student when I was teaching at the U University of California in Santa Barbara almost four decades ago. And, you know, he really worked on the importance of collaboration and mutualism in forest and savanna ecosystems. And I recall that it was sort of hard for Ray to, to get his work published because I think the general feeling at the time, the general thinking at the time amongst traditional ecological journals was the idea that competition and predation rules the world. And so I'm wondering whether sort of the story, the, the ecological story that you and your co-authors are telling with this article, whether that kind of prejudice against collaboration or being pro-competition uh, is, is still raging, or whether you feel that your ideas about the importance of facilitation are kind of running along a current thread of ecological thinking. Well, I do think that Dr. Calloway is one of the pioneers of really shifting that paradigm. And you're so right in that this idea of nature red in tooth and claw, this sort of very, you know, eat or be eaten kind of perspective really dominated ecology and ecological theory for many years. And we can see that as sort of a social mirror to who were the ecologists of the day and what cultures they were coming out of. So we, as scientists, we can't escape our own inherent human biases from our own cultures. And it's one of the things that's important for us to be very aware of, because when we, we look for something, we might find it um, because it is what we're, what we're used to looking for. So I do think that that paradigm is shifting. There have been a lot more, studies of positive species interactions, or we call them in ecology facilitation. But I think even more so, as we continue to develop the field of ecology, we're starting to realize that cooperation is really the foundation 
life on this planet. It's the foundation of multicellular organisms. The, if we think about how we wound up with even eukaryotic cells and not just bacteria, there was fundamentally a cooperation. Even to have the organization of life requires some communication and cooperation. And at every scale, we see that replicated. So between populations is what we study in ecology when we're talking about positive interactions between either populations or between species. But it's fundamental to life. And I think the more and more we look, the more we see evidence of that. Excellent. Thanks for that explanation. That's really, really super interesting. And I'm I'm pleased to hear that Reagan Galloway is is considered a, you know a rising or risen star in terms of making shifts in the way we you know our fundamental assumptions about how organisms and populations and species interact. And I guess along those lines, I'm curious about about your interactions with your co-authors. Uh, we we are very interested in the crossing and the intersection of en- expertise and ways of knowing. And so I, I noted that you published this author with two. Co- uh, co-authors, um, L.W. Ashlock and B. Gaylord. You know, what were the different backgrounds of, of your co-authors and how did you manage to kind of intersect and, and work on solving this really complex set of questions in a very complex environment? Sure. So I am very fortunate to have wonderful co-authors and so Lauren Ashlock is finished is currently finishing her PhD at the University of Vermont. And she at the time of this was a post undergraduate, had graduated with her, her bachelor's, a post undergraduate intern with me while I was completing my PhD studies. So Lauren was instrumental in accomplishing all of the research and spent many hours sewing isopods and porcelain crabs into tiny mesh squares oh that we could gosh. put out into the into the rocky inner tidal. These Got are the it. things we do as ecologists. Yes, we fabricate a lot of that. our own our own do. materials. So you know she spent many hours with me out there in the field under all kinds of different conditions, all kinds of different weather, uh, trying to capture the data that we needed for this paper. And then, so then she moved on to a PhD, which she's now doing in evolutionary biology. And so her perspective on this was really important because we see these positive interactions as having important consequences for organisms' adaptation to their environment. You can imagine if you're a tiny little porcelain crab and you're really never exposed to these dry conditions that other crabs might be exposed to. Just because you always live in muscle beds, generation after generation, what we found was these crabs are much more sensitive to drying out than many of the other species that live even a few feet away on a rock. For example, they they live on rock surfaces instead of inside the muscle beds. So that kind of evolutionary perspective was really important, and I'm so glad that Lauren joined us. Dr. Gaylord, Brian Gaylord, was my PhD advisor and is now a close collaborator of mine, and his background is in eco-mechanics. So he studies things like how how does evaporation actually work in a muscle bed? How uh, how, how do kelps modify currents? And sort of the, uh, the engineering aspects of biological interactions. And so his perspective was also really important to this paper. 
Very cool. Thanks for describing that. And I noted that um, you've, you've published another paper where you were looking at the kind of the biomechanics and, and ecological engineering of the, of the California mussel. Um, so that's kind of a different study, but I guess maybe it's pulling on the, the experiences and the insights that you got in this, this earlier paper, this, this recent paper about um, biogenics. Is that right? Biogenetic habitats. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we have, we have looked at effects of mussels and seaweeds on temperature variation across latitudes. We have looked at mussels effects on seawater chemistry. So a colleague, Erin Ninakawa, and I worked on that with other fantastic colleagues. And Erin really led that to see how mussels are affecting the seawater chemistry when, when, they're, when they are submerged at high tide. Cool. I love that. I love this idea of, of sort of ecological engineers. You know, I've only thought about that in, in, well, since I'm a forest ecologist, I've thought about that in terms of beavers and the way they can affect the hydrology and the water systems and so forth. But it's really neat to think about that happening in the marine environment as well. I really like that. Yeah, for sure. It happens all over the place. And as you probably know, with trees, for example, catching coastal fog and then depositing it into the soil, there's all kinds of examples of ways that organisms sort of engineer and affect our environment. We're not just passive, passive critters. And humans are a, a perfect example. Yes, of, that's right. Of yeah, for better or for worse, we certainly mm -hmm. have done some engineering we have of this. Certainly planet. modified it. Yeah, yep, certainly right. modified it. You know, another area of modification that I'm and, and many of our listeners here in Utah are familiar with uh, are the dynamics of the Great Salt Lake, which in many ways are sort of our 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 shoreline because it's a large body of salt water, uh, the way you know you, you in California and Texas have your your coastlines as well. Um, and our what we're experiencing in the last 20 years of what, what is being called a mega drought right now is, is a really severe shrinking of the Great Salt Lake, an increase in the beach areas and the shoreline areas. Um, and although we don't have mussels and porcelain crabs or these isopods, uh, we do have brine shrimp and other organisms that are totally dependent on the Great Salt Lake. And that includes things like shorebirds and migrating birds like pelicans, uh, which use the Great Salt Lake as a nesting spot. And I'm wondering whether your insights that you've developed from working with the Rocky Intertidal in California, you know, have anything to inform us about the biogenic environments that we see here in Utah with the Great Salt Lake? Are there, are there lessons learned uh, from your work that might be applied here in, uh, along the shorelines of our now shrinking Great Salt Lake? That's a great question. And I, I would need to know more, you know, to give you any real solid answer. I have some thoughts and I think I don't know enough about the Great Salt Lake ecology itself, but I think the general principles of considering resilience, when, when we consider ecological systems and we want to figure out how we can help support resilience to buy some time for these precious systems in the face of environmental changes and stressors and climate change and things like that. I really think the lesson I've learned is to just look to the systems themselves and ask what has allowed them to withstand all of the variation that they have experienced over the millennia. So how, so looking at the history of the Great Salt Lake, looking at the species that use it and their interactions, 
with each other and with the lake itself and the, the environmental drivers and atmospheric drivers that affect the lake and thinking about how has this survived for so long and under what, when was it stressed? Under what conditions have in different populations increased or decreased? And what can we learn from that about what helps this system be resilient? Got it. Beautiful. I wish you could come to my ecology class and talk about this because it it really is about relating, you know, some of the theory and generalities that you guys have worked on in one ecosystem, but relating the approach that you've taken, experimental, observational, asking questions of the system itself. I think that's really has the most promise in terms of really, you know, doing the the hard work of really understanding the basic processes that are right now under under change, under transition, but perhaps also subject to being understood by the ecologists who might study them. So I think that's a great answer. Um, one question I had was about uh, your broader impacts. That is, you know, research that's funded by the National Science Foundation, as, as yours has been, um, requires that the researchers carry out not only activities that relate to what's called what they call intellectual merit or pushing forward your own subfield of biology or science, but also the broader impacts. That is, why should the public care about this? Why, what are the impacts of your research on our understanding, the public's understanding of, of the world or of this ecosystem? And I'm, you, there were a few references in terms of you know, what this means in terms of climate change for humans, but wondering if you had other thoughts about you know, why the public should care about the research that you guys have done. Sure. So there's a few ways to answer that. I think at the fundamental level, one of the most direct uses of this work is to support conservation managers and resource managers who are working to protect habitats and often tasked with doing things like climate change management plans, right? When they themselves would have no control over the policies that dictate emissions, for example, but need to manage, for example, a park or a national shoreline or something like that. And what we are showing here is that conserving habitats can be a win-win, both for just the sake of habitat conservation for those populations that use them, but also for buying some time for climate change mitigation strategies to really work and start hopefully turning back the tide on climate change. We also, you know, we do work to really communicate this like we're doing today to the public as much as possible and involve people. So we involved a lot of uh, community college students, for example. We took people from the community out who mussel harvesters. A lot of people will go out to the coast, for example, and grab some mussels for dinner. So we want to show them how they can do that in a way that least impacts the mussel bed in the long term so that they it can be a sustainable harvest. Fantastic. That is a great response. I really like that. Um, just to wrap us up here, I just have one other question that actually doesn't relate directly to your own research that you've been that we've been discussing. But I also have seen that um, you know from some of the materials that I've read about you is that you're a true believer in equity and diversity and inclusion in the sciences, and that you'd also like to see more communication by scientists with the public. 
And so to me, it seems like you're one of those scientists, these wonderful scientists who are very committed to both public engagement and mentoring students with non-traditional backgrounds. Just wondering if you have anything to say about that or encouragement of people of maybe different kinds of backgrounds to do the kinds of work that, that you've been engaged with so successfully. Sure, absolutely. I am so enthusiastic about connecting the public and involving the public in science. I highly encourage everybody who's willing to lend a hand to participate because there is nobody who doesn't belong in science. It's it's for everybody and it's about everybody. It's about the study of our world and its mysteries. And there is not a single human on this planet that should somehow not participate in that in the way that they would choose to. So we, we are working very hard to change the status quo. There's quite a bit of uh, room to grow still in our field. And I hope that more people will join us. Well said, Laura. That it was fantastic. A great testimony, I think, both to your excellent research as well as your desire for contribution and connection with lots of other kinds of people in science. So thank you so much. We've been talking with Laura Jurgens about her recent study published in the journal Ecology about how communal living can buffer the extreme temperatures and drying factors that threaten survivorship in the intertidal zone. Laura, thank you so much for your input. Thank you so much, Nalini. It's been a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 in the morning on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni at the University of Utah.